So we're in a series at the moment called Lionhearted when we're uh, looking at the, the book of Daniel. So appropriately enough, uh, Daniel's going to come uh, and uh, read the passage for us today. Uh, we're up to uh, chapter 5. There's a microphone just there, Dan. You can sing if you want to. Do you want to sing it? <laughs> not especially. <laughs> Would we like him? No, that's not fair. Uh, so Daniel chapter 5. Thank you, Daniel. Okay, so we're reading from Daniel chapter 5. At least on the blue church Bibles, that's on page 889. I'll give you a second in case you want to look it up on your device, and then we'll start in just a moment. Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. Near the lampstand in the royal palace, the king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. And he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and, and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and, and have a gold chain placed around his neck and, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O oh, king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. 
the wise men and enchanters, were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means. But they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. I didn't want you to stop reading, Daniel. That was amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. I came across a, a story quite recently about an um, antiques trader that was going around sort of 
bits and bob shops in, in San Francisco, whatever you call them, you know what I mean, bits and bob shops. Uh, and as he's walking around, there's, there's not really much in this shop that, that takes his interest at all, but he notices on the floor uh, a cat is drinking milk out of this bowl. And he stops to look at the cat, it's, it's a beautiful cat, but actually the, the bowl that he's drinking out of uh, is this ancient bowl. It goes right back to the Ming dynasty, apparently, in, in China. So he thinks they've got no idea what that bowl is worth. So he, in, in his head, he's, he's working through what to do about this. Like does he take the moral ground and tell them how much it's worth and pay them that for it? Or is there another way he can get this, this bowl off them? So he goes up to the owner of the shop and says, uh, I love your cat. <laughs> it's, a, it's a beautiful cat. Can I, can I buy, buy your cat from you for $100? And this person said, well, to be honest, the, the cat isn't worth that much to me. We've not had it long. It just, it's just here to, to kill mice. Of course, you can, you can buy my cat. And so the guy buys the cat. And they said, I'll tell you what he says. I'm, I'm going to need something to feed the cat out of. Why don't I just give you an extra $10 for the bowl? And the shop owner says, well, actually, that's an ancient Chinese bowl. <laughs> goes back to the Ming dynasty. It's priceless. It's my most valid possession. He said, but interestingly, since we've had it, we've sold 17 cats. <laughs> Sometimes you read something and you think, I hope that's true. I really, really hope that's true. It's a great story, isn't it, about really who's conning who. But at the heart of the story, I think it highlights something for us that, that we do every day in our lives. The art of valuing something properly is a beautiful art, isn't it? How many of us have been through experiences or places and only later on realized that was precious? That was, that was holy ground I was stood, of, stood on. Or really it's only towards the end of someone's life that we wish we had more time together. We're aware of how important they are to us and how precious they are to us. We all do this, don't we? We value something so highly, and other things we, we value very, not very highly at all. Uh, the word that we use for when something is, is highly valued is, is honored. You know, when those times you feel honored to be somewhere, or honored to be given something, or honored to know somebody, it's in that moment what we're saying is, I, I feel highly valued, more valued than I thought I was. I'm, I'm honored to be here. And when we treat things with less than they deserve, we dishonor them. And in many ways, this story in, in Daniel chapter 5 is a story about honor. I wonder today if you and I were to try and think about those things that we really honor in our lives. If we had to make a role of honor for each of us personally, what are the things we value most highly? Now, you might not use language like honor. You might use words like priority. These things I've got to make a priority. I've got to get my priorities straight. What, what kind of things are, are priorities for us in, in our lives? And as we go through this story, that can kind of be the background noise for us today. What am I really honoring? What do I really value? What are my true priorities <coughs> in life? Uh, I came across recently a, a fascinating book. It's not a long book, but it's called Dopamine Nation. Uh, it's written by uh, a woman called Anne who's an expert on addiction. And she works in Stanford University and has been a researcher in addiction uh, for most of her life. She's written something like four or five books uh, on the subject. So if there's a world expert on addiction, this woman is, is pretty close. 
And she says that there's stuff that you and I do on a daily basis which releases this chemical in our brain. Some of you know the name of this chemical already. It's, it's called dopamine. Uh, and it kind of sits in an area of our brain that's associated with reward, but it's particularly associated with pleasure. So anytime you and I go to the cupboard and we rifle through all the healthy stuff to find that chocolate bar, uh, dopamine is being released, that, that chemical in our bodies. Some of us will go to the gym, and after we've, we've exercised, I'm saying some of us, some of you will go to the gym. I'm more on the chocolate scale. Uh, and, and there's dopamine released. Some TV shows we watch make us do that sort of belly laugh, or some of us that ugly laugh, and it's dopamine that's being released. There are people who, when we see them, we associate pleasure with them, and so dopamine is released. But interesting, she says, that like no other generation in history, we've become addicted to the experience of pleasure. And in fact, for many of us, if we're really honest, we will value that higher than almost anything else. You, know, you only think about people who are quite happy to buy clothes and pay no attention to who's made those and where they've come from. It's happened somewhere else. It's not part of our lives. It doesn't affect me, and so I just get that release of, uh, of dopamine. Uh, I'll warn you if you intend to read the book, it's a, it's a brutally honest uh, book. There's some stories in there that I wouldn't share uh, this morning, but it talks about this addiction we have. And she says this, we've transformed the world from a place of scarcity to a place of overwhelming abundance. Drugs, food, news, Gambling, shopping, gaming, texting, sexting, Facebooking, Instagramming, YouTubing, tweeting. I realize I'm describing some people's weekend here. Uh, the increased numbers, variety, and potency of highly rewarding stimuli today is staggering. It's true, isn't it? As another author put it, which she quotes in the book, we are entertaining ourselves to death. I want to be anything but bored. So how many of us, first thing in the morning, before we've got on our knees and prayed, before we've even said good morning to the most important people in our lives, grab what? Well, some of you don't want to talk to me this morning. Our phones. How many people know the phrase doom scrolling? Just tell me something. Just fill my head with something. We're looking for that dopamine. We're looking for, for that release. Uh, really interestingly, because of that area of the brain, the pleasure and pain are very much associated. So as dopamine begins to die down, the brain begins to lean into pain. And so many of us have had that experience of eating that chocolate bar or watching that movie, just not wanting it to end. Because the other side of pleasure, if you overfill your dopamine, is, is pain. And so she goes on to talk about this. The smartphone is the modern-day hypodermic needle delivering digital dopamine 24-7 for a wired generation. If you haven't yet met the drug of your choice, it's coming to a website near you soon. It's just true, isn't it? How many of us today, if we were really honest, would reply to that with, ouch. Ouch. You don't want to talk to me this morning. <laughs> just, just ouch. We know it won't satisfy because tomorrow we'll need more news stories. We know that going to the gym, I mean, fairly soon, that dopamine's going to run out and we'll have to be back there again. 
We reach for caffeine, don't we, when we're feeling tired. We reach for wine when we're feeling stressed. We have these places that we run to because we value that so much, but they cannot satisfy. Otherwise, we'd, we'd be done with it, wouldn't we? If there was a, a poster boy for excess, you'd have to pick Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, uh, in this story. When he gives a feast, he doesn't just give a feast. He invites a thousand nobles to come. That's bigger than any party uh, I've ever thrown. Uh, and rather tellingly, it tells us in the text, with wine. That's a lot of wine for a thousand guys. Interestingly, later on, it refers to the fact that his wives, plural, uh, and concubines, also plural, were also there. So this is a huge gathering of people. And what's interesting is that the Bible doesn't tell us that the marriage is a bad thing. It tells us marriage is a great thing. But it's the excess that we're seeing here uh, in this passage. One is not enough. Uh, wine on its own, if you can handle it, is not a bad thing, but it's the excess uh, of it. Anything but bored, anything but boring, uh, just give me more, give me more. This, this was Belshazzar. And in this moment of excess, he has a thought. Wouldn't it be funny if at this party we got some of the treasures from Jerusalem, some of the golden goblets that were taken from the temple, and what if we demonstrated how safe and secure and powerful, what if I demonstrated my status by drinking from those cups? And actually, he doesn't just stop there, does he? Once those cups are brought out, they use those cups to, taste, uh, to toast the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood, forgetting that the temple was built to the god who created gold and silver and bronze and iron and, and wood. And how many times do we do that? in our lives. So easy, isn't it, to look at this passage and think, oh, what an idiot. How could you act like this? But all the time we exchange our experience of the gift for the giver. I'm sure we can all recognize today times in our lives when we've sought God desperately because we needed something. And once we were through that season, that hunger for the giver dies away. I honestly wonder, just reflecting on my own experience, if that's sometimes why God says no, or sometimes why God says wait. We get so obsessed, don't we? And our pursuit of God can just become this other dopamine experience. How many of us will have that question on the way home in the car, and you don't have to tell me the result of this. How was church today? What did you get out of it? The wrong question. What did you bring to church today? What have you come to offer God today? As we come to, to God's word, are we, are we hearers of God's word? These are all challenges, aren't we? So if you wanted to kind of summarize um, Belshazzar in, in this chapter, there are two key things I think that we can see. The first is treating good things as if they're God things. There's a fantastic book on idolatry by an amazing author, a guy called Tim Keller. And he writes this, that often we think of idols as being things which are obviously bad. You know, if I asked any one of you here, have you got a statue at home? And sometimes you bow down to it and tell it how wonderful it is and, and ask it for stuff. Yeah? So you've got one, yeah. Just one person, just one person. We, we don't, do we? And yet our world is cluttered with idols. 
things that we worship, things that give us everything that God alone should give us, my sense of who I am, my sense of how I am, my sense of how safe I am, how strong I am, how important I am. They all come from these other things around us, don't they? And in themselves, they're not necessarily bad, but we take good things and we make them God things. Holidays are really good things. Amen? That's good because I've just booked three months off. No, I haven't. I haven't. <laughs> but if you live constantly to get away, if that's the only place you feel, oh, I can relax now, I can be me, if that's the only place you get that sense of, I've earned this, this is what I've done, it can become a God thing for us. Sex, the Bible tells us sex is a good thing. If you start worshipping it, if you make it a God thing, it leads to all kinds of issues and, and problems in our lives. We treat sometimes good things as if they're God things. And then the reverse is also true in this passage. We can see that he treats God's things as if they're nothing. Now, the Israelites think that these are sacred and special, but they're just, they're just cups. And we'll use them to toast whoever we want. And again, I'm sure none of us are, are guilty of that specifically. But the Bible tells us the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The breath you just took, it's not yours. The Bible tells us he holds our breath in the palm of his hand. It's a gift. How many of us will just waste our time? What about the way we treat others? The way we speak about others? We treat God's things as if they're nothing. There's a letter that's written in the, the book of James, uh, in, the, in the New Testament called the, the, the letter of James, and in it he talks about our tongue. He makes the really important point that the tongue might be a small part of our body, but it can get you into big trouble. He says, out of it flow blessings and curses. And yet the source of that has got to be a murky pool, right? We've got to think about the source of our words, of our language, of the things we say about people. He says, with it, with the tongue, we bless God, our maker, our creator. And then with the same tongue, we curse people who have been made in his image. How do you think that looks from heaven? We treat God's things so often as if they're nothing. Some of us today will already be applying that to areas of our lives. And so into this party comes a gate crusher. We're told that a hand appears. Now, you'll see a bit of PowerPoint here, but I can't really capture how terrifying this moment would be. A human hand, not even a whole person, a human hand, just for a moment, this is petrifying, right? And I know our instinct today would be to get out the phone and film it and be the first to share it somewhere, but this is, this is petrifying. And then the hand goes over to just near the lampstand and starts to write in the plaster of the wall. You can imagine how the, yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Took a while. Uh, you can imagine how the mood of the party shifts. 
what on earth is going on? And these words appear, mene, mene, telkel, parsim. Now, King Belshazzar is kind of knows his father's history. He knows that there's been uh, these moments when his dad has been led by dreams and interpretations. And so he knows this is not just a joke. This is not just a trick. There's something behind this. And so he calls all the people that he'd normally get together, the the advisors, the wise men, the magi uh, of Babylon. He offers them this gift. And if you're looking for a dopamine addiction, here it is. If you tell me what this means, a purple robe, which means you've just been elevated in status, a gold chain around your neck. So he's trying to reward, trying to appeal to everybody's sensitivities, whether it's status or wealth. And then you'll be given the third highest position in the kingdom. And they come and they look at this writing on the wall, and none of them will interpret it. And so the king is even more petrified now. This man who is generally not scared of anything or anyone, four words written on his wall, his knees are knocking, his face is pale. We were talking earlier about priorities, and one of the interesting things about this chapter, a lot of people have questions about it, and one of the questions is, how did the Medes take over so quickly from Babylon? And one of the answers is that historians believe when the Medes attacked Babylon, a party was going on. So this guy feels so safe, feels so strong, feels so secure. His nation, his capital is under siege, and he's partying. The nobles aren't even dealing with it. He's just just partying away. That's the likelihood this party, the likelihood what's happening right now, if not one very similar to it, because we know at uh, a party, he loses his life. Mene, mene, telkel, parsin. And suddenly the queen, or a word that can be interpreted, the queen mother, which is quite interesting, it could be somebody from, from the past, reminds him, your father promoted Daniel to this position, and we recognize that there was a God-given gift in him. That's who you want to call. It's weird, isn't it, that Daniel wasn't there? All the nobles, a thousand nobles were there, but somehow Belshazzar, long before he goes and gets the goblets, knows, I don't think Daniel's going to like what goes down tonight. It's interesting, isn't it? I'm sure none of us here have been guilty of that, thinking, I won't invite them. I won't, I won't do that around them. Most powerful man on the planet at the time won't do what he wants because of Daniel's reputation. So Daniel is brought and very bluntly tells the king, you can keep your gifts. I don't need that. One of the things that Anne recommends in the book is a dopamine detox we need to have a break from these things so that our brain can get used to them again and enjoy them at appropriate measure. Well, Daniel here seems to be on the ultimate dopamine detox. Keep your gifts. I don't need money. I don't need power. I don't need fame. But I will interpret these words for you. So the interpretation of these words is is actually quite interesting. Uh, Mene, in the original language, it's the word mina, which was an amount of money. It might be worth something like five pounds to us today, but this isn't just one mina, it's, it's two mina, so this is ten pounds. Uh, the next one is tekel, which can be translated as shekel, uh, which we might think of as a pound. Uh, and then a parson is half a shekel, uh, so we might think of that as, as 50p. So there on the walls, at this elaborate, expensive, excessive party, 
five pounds, one pound, 50p. There's a, there's a countdown going on, isn't there? There's a worth that's been added to what's going on. And then when Daniel stands down, I guess, praise God, speak to me. Holy Spirit, minister through me. He takes these words uh, and he chooses similar sounding nouns. Uh, Mene sounds a lot like numbered. Tekel sounds a lot like weighed. And parsing like divided. And so in the authority of God's Spirit, he says this. Here's the interpretation. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. How many of us have prayed for God to speak to us? How many of us fancy giving this interpretation to a drunken dictator? Lion-hearted. Lion-hearted. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. As safe and secure and important as you feel, you are not invincible. Your life has an end game, an end date. Tackle. You have been weighed on the scales and found one thing. If Belshazzar was terrified before, you've been weighed. Everything you've done with your life, your actions, your words, what you haven't done, what you haven't said, it amounts to something. And all of that has been weighed, and it's not enough. You've been found wanting. Passing. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that very night, this happens. And Darius the Mede, who we'll meet in the next chapter, takes over. Just as Daniel had foreseen, as he interpreted that, um, the, the dream of the statue. Do you remember the four li- different layers? It's starting to come true in Daniel's own lifetime. Daniel's hope, Daniel's uh, prayer that God, uh, even though the nation itself had been um, kind of overpowered by Babylon and others, that God's sovereignty over that would mean that one day what now seems immovable and powerful will one day shift and will one day move. And I think within these words we find, for me, two things. Uh, There's encouragement and there's also warning. All of us have to live in a kingdom, don't we? The United Kingdom. There's certain freedoms that we have in that, certain responsibilities. As we look around us, we see different types of kingdoms, don't we? We look at what's going on in the Ukraine and Russia. We look at North Korea and what's happening between North and South and some of the things that they're threatening, the the relationship that some of those nations have with with America and us, tiny little nation in the middle. And it can feel so permanent, can't it? It can feel so immovable. The encouragement for all of us here is that God is sovereign over all of that. And no matter how powerful anyone is, no matter what position or army or wealth or strategy, one day all of us, Every single one of us will appear before the judgment seat and our lives will be weighed. And that's encouraging, but it's also a warning, isn't it? If I were to weigh my life, what is it worth? When I come to the end, when my body finally gives in, 
and my time on earth is done because all of our days are numbered. None of us will live forever on, on this earth, in this body, in this life. When I get to all of it, and all of it is, is put on the scales, will it be worth it? Later on, Paul, when he writes to one church, will explain to them, listen, no matter how good any of us are, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. If you want to know what glory looks like, you want to know what goodness looks like, you look at God, and even the very greatest of us have to say, I've fallen far short. It's a warning to us. What's almost worse for Daniel, and he launches into it here, as Daniel read for us, with such power, your father was humbled until he acknowledged that God was sovereign. You should know. <laughs> you saw it. You've got no excuse. You should know. And I fear that on that day when I stand there, I'll experience that very same thing. You should have known. And without excuse. We all are. Without excuse. Mene kalkel passing. The words that Daniel chooses here, you did not honor God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. You did not value him or the life that he'd given to you and others. That's why he sent this hand. What will it be like one day to be held in the hands of this God? Later in the New Testament, there are these words in the letter of the Hebrews. Uh, and the writer there says this, Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So he's looking back to kind of justice in an Old Testament sense. He says, how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished? who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. The warning here is don't treat God's things as if they're nothing. His word, his people, his grace, don't treat it as if it's nothing. He then goes on to say this. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The very famous sermon based on this verse that was uh, shared during a time of revival. And I'm told that the people who were listening to it were so petrified that there are nail marks and teeth marks in the pews. Because if we really grasp this, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands. You think of the power. The word in the Hebrew for, for hand is the same as the word power. Very often the Hebrews, when they were praying about their work, prayed that God would bless the work of their hands because so much of what we do, many of us, is, it, is through the power that we have uh, in our hands. Many times in the Old Testament, they talk about the hand of God separating the, the Red Sea or sending the plagues into Egypt or doing this or that. You think about the power of God. 
It's a dreadful thing to fall into the power of the living God. Weighed, tested, examined, held. Dreadful thing. I'd love to take us for a moment into the New Testament because one of the big things that's different about the Old Testament and the New is that this judge of the living and the dead, this glorious holy God, walks on our streets and we get to see him. We get to talk to him and see what he's like. And I'd love to take you to one story about Jesus' hands. Jesus is in the temple one day and he's teaching. And in through the doors bursts this group of men And in the middle of them, they have this woman who we're told has been caught in the act of adultery. And this woman is dragged, screaming and kicking, I'm sure petrified, uh, into the court and thrown on the floor before Jesus. How often do we feel like the law does that to us, the rules do that to us, just throw us on the floor. And she's thrown on the floor in front of Jesus. And there's this question they ask him. In the law... Moses tells us to stone such women. I haven't even bothered to learn any such women. And now what do you say we should do? And John tells us when he records this in John chapter 8, Jesus knew this was a trap. Some questions are a trap. Some questions it's quite unwise to answer. He knows it's a trap because Jesus uh, loves the law. He loves the Old Testament. He's come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So if he says, no, don't worry about it, let it go, he, he undermines all of that. And his authority as a rabbi just unravels. On the other hand, if he just says, yeah, stone her, all of those other people around him who found grace and acceptance and love, no, I, I have no hope. It's a, it's a trap. It's a trick. And so in this moment where people are up in his face and shouting and demanding answers, Jesus does this thing. He stoops to the ground. Whose level is he on right now? And he draws in the dust with his finger. There's so many questions I've got about this story that I can't wait to ask him. One is, where are the men? The law of Moses said that both people who were caught in adultery should be stoned, conveniently forgotten that. Where's the husband who might stand in her defense at least to save her life? But the bigger question, (laughs) what did he write in the sand? There'd be many theories about it. Some people have wondered, was it the Ten Commandments? Was it a list of the men's sins? Because Jesus knows our hearts. He knows how easy it is to judge people for things that we're guilty of. It's really interesting, isn't it, when Jesus talks about the speck of dust in our eye, in their eye, sorry, versus the log in ours. Now, a log and a speck are two aspects of the same thing. What really frustrates me about others is what I'm most concerned about for myself. Jesus, I don't know if he just needed a while to think, There's a verse in the Psalms that tells us he has compassion on us. He remembers that we are dust. But he wrote something in the sand. I've got a very good friend who's convinced the Lord told him one day. He just wrote the word grace. Sounds like Jesus to me. It's highly plausible. But he wrote something. 
And then he straightened up. And he said to them, yep, you're quite right. Let those who are without sin throw the first stone. And then he steps back. And all around the temple courts, you could hear the sound of stones being dropped. John tells us that they all left. One by one, they walked away. And what I love about this story is for all the questions that we have about it, Jesus' only question is to the woman. He does what nobody else in this account seems to manage to do, which is talk to her. And he says, where are your accusers? Now, interestingly, in this moment, if the ability to judge is dependent on perfection, if I'm not going to be tainted by my own weakness or my own failure, then there is somebody there who is qualified to cast the first stone. That's Jesus. One by one, they all realize this, and shame falls on them, and they they walk away, I'm sure, wondering for days, what do I do with that? Where are your accusers? She says, sir, there's, there's no one left. And then he says, the judge of the living and the dead, neither do I condemn you. Go in peace. Sometimes when we read about God's judgment and stories like this in the Old Testament, it can be so hard for us. Sometimes I think we spend so long thinking, singing and thinking about being saved that we forget what we've been saved from. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or there is another option. Because the same hand that wrote on Belshazzar's wall, weighed, numbered, divided, stoops with this woman and writes grace in her story. And for all of us today, we have the choice. If you want to, at the end of your days, you can stand there and and do your own defense. You can stand and try and make a list of all the reasons, all the good stuff you did and all the bad stuff you didn't do. That's a strategy if you want. I'm here to tell you that's a really bad strategy. When this Jesus... See, if this woman's sin is going to be forgiven, the penalty that she should pay has has got to pass from her to somebody else. Otherwise, justice hasn't been served. Mercy has, but justice hasn't. And the same Jesus that says, neither do I condemn you, is saying, I will take on myself your sin. In fact, the Bible even tells us, he became sin for us. So there on the cross, Jesus becomes adultery. For this woman and countless others like her, becomes blasphemy. Some of you know we have a a book club at the moment uh, as we're journeying through Lent together and we're reading through this amazing little book, He Chose the Nails, and we're thinking about some of the exchanges that Jesus makes for us. He who was timeless, switching eternity for calendars, and he who was boundless, being limited to the speed of walking and all those kind of things, being in one place at one time. But it makes really clear for us the most amazing exchange is sinlessness. The holy God, perfect through all eternity, one with the Father, becomes sin for us. And on that day, 
we have the option to say, Jesus, would you take my place? And our record, our history, our story will be exchanged with his because he received in himself something of the punishment that we deserve. We get to receive something of the reward that he deserves. The nails, the, the hands that we fall into are nail-pierced hands. So I wonder if you'd pray with me today and for all of us, I guess, this will be landing in, in different places. But I just want to invite you to just to bow your heads before God. And just still your heart. And for a moment, just to listen. We're so guilty, I'm so guilty of just filling our time, filling our services with words and noise. But just for a moment today. What might God want to say to you? And there might be some people here who've never asked Jesus to exchange their place. We've understood that Jesus is the savior of the world, but never actually realized he wants to be your savior. He wants to be your friend. And so today, if you want to say yes to Jesus, as he offers you this, words run dry, don't they? Opportunity is he offers you this exchange. Today could be your day. This could be your place. This could be your time. And so I want to pray with you today. I invite you to say this in your heart after me. And then I'm also aware that for others of us, this story hits really close to home because there are other idols, there are other gods in our lives. And it's just a cluttered mess, and we need to get that right before God. And there might be something that flashes before you like a neon sign that you're thinking of right now. And then lastly, I want to pray for anyone here who feels that sense of judgment weighing heavy on them because of something a place, a time, an issue, a person, an addiction, whatever fear, whatever it is, that makes you feel less than. From Jesus' words to this woman, I do not believe that is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So I'm just going to pray and as and when these words land near you, just echo them in some way in your heart. Lord Jesus, I recognize my need of a savior. That before the grand scales of eternity, I am morally bankrupt. That my life and my choices have accrued a moral debt I cannot repay. That even if I was to live as good as I could, 
for the rest of my days, I still cannot help from doing bad. <coughs> and I ask you today to forgive me because of the cross. Because you suffered. Because you were abandoned. Because you died. Would you apply the power of that sacrifice to my, my life? Save me, God. Hold me. I give you the entirety of myself, the entirety of my life. So that we can be friends. For now and for forever. Just know that if you prayed that today, all of heaven just threw a party. And your name was on the banner. Lord, I want to pray for those of us today who are struggling with an addiction, and, and a need. For those of us here who feel bound up by something, <clears throat> and we keep chasing it, knowing that it'll never fulfill us, we, we do things that we ourselves don't really want to do. And I pray that today, in Jesus' name, the power of your cross, the blood of Jesus, would break those chains. Lord, would you begin to detach us and give us, Lord, more of your strength and will. God, we need your will to work in us. Your will, your grace to break free. And for anyone here who feels judged, know today that though religion and rules may want to stand over you and condemn you, Jesus stoops to be near you. And that there is no sin too great. There is no problem too big. There is no moment of your history too large or too long that he cannot absorb into the power of his blood. So I pray for us today, anyone feeling judged, anyone feeling less than, that we would hear these words of Jesus. Go in peace. In the freedom of God. In the forgiveness of God. Be at peace. Shalom, wholeness, fullness. Peace. So Lord, would you speak peace to those storms that rage? in our minds, in our memories, in the words of others, in the actions of others, or in the absence of actions from others, in the absence of words from others. Might your peace reign, God. Might it guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.